and welcome to another episode of RM Sotheby's Car Show. I'm Peter Haynes, and this week we're on location in the heart of Mayfair at the all-new Concours on Savile Row. For the event, RM Sotheby's partnered up with the iconic designer and Savile Row resident, Oswald Boateng, and over the two days we were surrounded by an incredible selection of cars on display at the home of British tailoring. Once again, I'm joined by our Business Development Director, the ever so suave Duccio Lopresto, and in part two, our special guest is Tom Heap, Sotheby's watch expert. And Tom and I delve a little bit into the number of parallels that exist between the car world and watch lovers, and we learn plenty of fun facts along the way. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And as a reminder, as with all our episodes in this series, you can watch it in wonderful Technicolor on the RM Sotheby's YouTube channel. I hope you enjoy it. We've come to another great location and we are here in Savile Row in central London. And for those of you who are not necessarily London or even UK based, Savile Row is the home of British tailoring, of traditional British tailoring. So pretty much this whole street, uh, and we're right, sort of, we're sort of sandwiched between Bond Street, very upmarket, I can't afford anything in Bond Street, Regent Street, also upmarket, some things I can afford, but not many. So we're sort of sandwiched between the middle. And here we are in Savile Row, and this road is just full of, um, I'm not going to say fashion stores, I'm going to say tailors. And so kind of a subtle difference. This is, if you want a bespoke suit, this is the place to come. And, uh, and it has been for like, I don't know, 200 years, a long time. Um, the other thing worth mentioning about this precise location is that there is a building behind me and I'm pointing at it. Uh, for those of you uh, listening to the podcast, that isn't going to be helpful, but I am pointing to a building behind me, which used to be Apple Records. And it's very, very famous. And there's a blue plaque on the front of the building because in 1969, January 1969, it, it, on the roof of the building behind me, that is where the Beatles performed their last ever live gig. And my memory of that is that they shouldn't have been doing it and I think the police stormed the roof of the building and dragged them uh, away from their microphones, I think. Legendary so, moment. A legendary yeah. moment. And um, I am joined, and you've uh, met him before on previous episodes, I'm uh, by our uh, a car expert and our business development director, uh, Duccio. And so this is a great, great, what um, an amazing location. No? Fantastic. Thank you so much, Peter. And uh, it's probably one of the best locations you can host an event in London. It's a sunny day and uh, the, the selection of cars is also fantastic. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it is an, an official concourse organized by Magneto. Uh, and uh, I must say like the selection is really great. Sunny day in London in the most central location you can get. So yeah, very happy to be here. Uh, yes, it is an amazing venue and it's also absolutely rammed with people and Savile Row isn't always a street where you get a lot of people. So I think it, the combination of a beautiful sunny day and I'm not sure the middle of London has ever seen an event quite like this with in terms of this array of cars. No, maybe um, the London to Brighton is a good example where they yeah. show like every year, like, yeah. but it's very specific with veteran cars i think the selection today is really great because they have like modern stuff pre-wars great 1950s ferraris and 
and even like weird solar taxis. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're sitting next to a, a vehicle that looks like a, um, a polo mint or a hula hoop. <laughs> uh, a, a completely circular vehicle which is solar panelled and apparently this is the future of taxis in yeah. the city centre. Um, which is cool, actually. I quite like it. You, yeah. you can only get one passenger in it, mind you. So um, yeah, yeah. it's not, oh, well, two people. But uh, but I think actually, I think that's a bit of a theme um, for this event. I think the political climate and, and, and the social climate, shall we say, is leading um, event organisers uh, to try and uh, build the future of automotive uh of the automotive world of cars uh, and and you know build the connection between history and and the future and Absolutely. um we we sort of saw that a little bit around the london's brighton or it was a discussion around the london's brighton it's all very well having lots of uh you know 150 year old cars but yeah. you know what is the future and uh, th i think this v event is very similar because in fact there are a couple of electric cars yeah. in, in the row and I and and also the car manufacturers that are exhibiting quite a few have chosen to bring an, an example of their heritage mm -hmm. fleet and also what they think of as the future which yeah. I think which I think is quite nice being in Savile Row is all about design it's all about making things beautiful and it's about bespoke uh, you in particular are really into design that it I am yeah is is that for you the aspect of the car world that interests you more than anything it's the design more than the oily bits should we say absolutely yeah the thing that strikes me the most in a car is uh, is the beauty so the design of it uh, the aesthetics and uh, the functionality as well of the design so if you take for example uh, Zagato as a coach builder um, I love the fact that every piece of design in the body of the car was had a particular function like the double bubble the cut tail or stuff like that those are particular design features that look beautiful to me to the any uh, enthusiast eyes but they were made with a specific function to win races to be faster and um, yeah in general i love design and i think savile row is like one of the best places you can be at in london to find uh, yeah, great suits. So it's a nice combo of fashion, cars, uh, and uh, beautiful things. We are partnering, RM Sotheby's are partnering with uh, Oswald Boateng this week for the, the, this event, these couple of days, and we're basing our hospitality in his boutique. And we had the chance to uh, have a conversation with him a little bit earlier, and he was talking a lot about his approach to design. And it was very, very similar in the sense that if you're gonna design uh, something to wear it needs to look great needs to look fantastic but also it has to be functional yeah it has to serve a purpose there's Absolutely. no there's no as he said there's no point in wearing uh, some crazy looking outfit or a suit if yeah. actually it's just impractical mm -hmm. or uncomfortable to be in and that's exactly what you were saying about car designs yeah. you know I mean most of the great car designers design cars to be beautiful uh, to be aesthetically really pleasing but also functional yeah. and whether that function is to make them fast or to make them aerodynamic and make them efficient or whatever it might be yeah but, yeah yeah uh, uh, so and, be, and also being uh, italian from milan the kind of the fashion capital of italy and probably of europe uh, i've always been kind of involved in fashion in in design 
you know, we Italians were crazy about design and everything, anything we do. Um, so yeah, that's a bit my, my background and why I'm so attracted by this, uh, these great, great cars and great designs. Like this uh, Ferrari 166 Touring, which is yeah. one of my favorite cars ever, talking about it is great a, it, Ferraris. It, it is a beautiful car. And, yeah. and, and I, I'm just going to pick up on something because we mentioned the, the Beatles gig. Yeah. So three cars in behind us is a Fassel Vega. Yeah. And um, they're not a common car. You don't see them around a lot. And um, famously, Ringo Starr, Beatles drummer, he had a Fassel Vega. Oh, really? And when they did their gig on the roof behind us in 1969, there are photographs taken from up on the roof looking down into this street. And pr I reckon within five metres of where we're sitting right now, Ringo Starr's Fassel Vega was parked in the street yeah. when they did that gig in 1969. And there, and there is one uh, just behind us. Yeah. We've also got um, an amazing uh, convertible uh, Ferrari Testarossa. Oh, yeah. Now, I know... I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, Agnelli had one of those cars built for his. It, it was it was unique for him, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, the very car, actually the only Ferrari Testarossa uh, made by Ferrari, officially as a factory in a Spider configuration for uh, for the Avvocato Agnelli, which had obviously great taste in uh, with in cars, in fashion, in anything, and he decided to build a one-off. Uh, Testarossa with this beautiful grey and blue col color configuration. Uh, but what I love is not just the design of the car itself, but also the, 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 the plate, which is T-O-O-O-O-O-G, and G stands for Gianni Agnelli, G is for is his name. Is that right? Yeah, so yeah. that, I, now, you, it, viewers, listeners, you're going to have to forgive me because this is just a fundamental lack of research on my part. The Is that car behind us then, is that his car? Yeah. That is actually his? That is the Agnelli car. That isn't yeah. a copy that's had No, the no, no. That's off. the very unique Ferrari Testarossa Spider owned by Agnelli. And uh, the one next to it, uh, this Ferrari 166 uh, Touring Barchetta was also owned by Agnelli. Uh, so... Yeah, quite and, a and, quite a special uh, combo. And as you say, I mean, Agnelli, uh, the boss of the Fiat Empire, um, in his heyday, I suppose, in the sort of late fifties, sixties, was the ultimate playboy, wasn't he? He was. I mean, the yeah. boats, the Reavers, the yeah. the, the 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 supercars, the his the fashion style as well. And I mean, his fashion. He was very unique, very flamboyant, very eccentric, uh, but in a very elegant, always very elegant. Very That's what way. people really love. Funnily enough, when we did our when we did our recording at the Monaco auction, there was a, a Fiat Jolly, uh, yeah. and that uh, um, uh, Agnelli had given that to his secretary. And yeah. Michael Squire's uh, very uh, witty remark, I thought, was that um, <laughs> he was just uh, pontificating on what the relationship between Mr. Agnelli and his secretary <laughs> might have been, uh, because, um, and I'm not casting aspersions, it may have been purely professional, but he was, of course, a well-known ladies' man, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Much like yourself, Dicho. Yeah, uh, no, uh, no, uh, he but, was but, you know, <laughs> on another level. Uh, <laughs> in another life, yes, exactly. Not something I'm known for either, actually. Uh, is there a car that you'd take home above any other? There are two. Uh, the Ferrari 166, because I remember this very car at Villa d'Este, uh, I think 10 years ago. Um, this car won the um, Coppa d'Oro Best of Show Public Referendum uh, Prize. Uh, and it was erased at the Mille Mille with Count Marzotto. So it's a very, very important car. 
But the other card I would take is a card that we brought, not because it's our card, but, but because I love Alfa Romeo, and it's the Alfa Romeo 1750 yeah. 6C with uh, the Zagato, which is a fantastic car. And uh, it's all original, all preserved, and it's one of my very favorite pre-war designs. Um, and it's a racing car. It's a racing sh chassis. So, fantastic. and I always, I always think because I'm a pre-war guy at heart in terms of my passion and 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 how I grew up in my family. And um, the thing is, I think in the year 2022, when you have a big line of exotic modern supercars, people look at those pre-war cars and they sort of almost with sympathy they go, "Oh, isn't it nice? What a nice old car!" Yeah. You know, thinking that the, the, its top speed is 50 miles an hour, you know, downhill with the wind behind it. And of course, what people don't realise is that when you look at a car like that Alpha. That was 100% the supercar of its day. As it you was. say, it, it was built for competition. Yeah. It was a very, but even today, and and I maintain this uh, so often. I uh, people that don't necessarily intrinsically love or know very much about pre-war cars. I, I quite often find myself saying, look, if I was, if you were to take this car for a three-mile drive get out onto some country roads, you would be astonished at the performance of this car Absolutely. because they are properly fast cars, yeah. aren't they? And, and that, that alpha mechanics. I mean, yeah. there is no electronics, of course. Uh, no. You have to do the job 100% while driving and you don't need to go that fast to enjoy the car. That's the fundamental aspect. Like with modern cars, uh, with modern Ferraris, Lamborghinis and so on, you need to really push them hard to enjoy the, the feeling, right? The emotions. With pre-war cars, even if you're going like at 50, 60 kilometers per hour, you feel a complete, you know, emotion and, you know, it's a sensation that it's unbeatable. So, yeah. yeah and, and you can do 50 miles an hour actually on a kind of, a, on a country road in a pre-war car and it feels like 150 miles yeah, an hour. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know in a previous life, I used to be a, a, a road test journalist on Autocar magazine. And one of the great privileges of a job like that is that we were constantly having the latest supercars coming through the magazine and I was there in the days of the cars like the Diablo and um, that that was my era uh, Ferrari 355s I guess were the current thing maybe 360 I think had just come out yeah um, and they're actually quite hard cars to use yeah uh, on certainly on British roads absolutely um, you can't really go that fast on on these roads so. no no and uh, yeah but apart from the the beauty of driving that car, I think the design is so pure of the 1750 Alfa Zagato. It's an example of simplicity, typical of the 90, of 1930s design in Italy, which is simply timeless for me. So, yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree, I agree. And I'm biased, I'm Italian, I love Italian cars, I know. But yeah. yeah, and here we are in the home of British tailoring, yeah. in, you know, traditional British tra tailoring, and we're not yeah. talking about uh, any of the traditional British cars, but there's, a, there's some lovely cars here from Rolls-Royce, yeah. Bentley, Aston Martin, um, you know, all of, the, all of the big British bands, uh, Jaguar, that, you know, are all represented here, which is fantastic. And now, look, we're going to have to, I think if we're in Savile Row, we're going to have to talk a little bit about clothes. And I, you are from Milan. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm just going to throw it out there. You, you, I, I'm just going to give you a big pile of man, money. I know that's not going to happen because <laughs> you know me too well to know that I'm not going to give you a big pile of money. So, now, are you going to spend that money in Savile Row and buy, come out with something that looks very, uh, very British, perhaps? Mm. Or are you going to go and spend your money in Milan and come out looking, well, that's very Italian? Yeah, <laughs> so um, difficult question, but I think 
being Italian, being a big supporter of Italian fashion, I would probably spend the money uh, in Milan. Uh, it's probably also cheaper, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, which, is nowadays. which is a factor. Yeah, no, but uh, I love uh, the uh, legendary Italian um, uh, tailors like, you know, Caraceni, uh, the hot couture of Dolce Gabbana and Armani are simply fantastic and, and so they are timeless, you know. Uh, but I must say Oswald Boateng, for example, is one of the best tailors uh, and most elegant uh, tailors around uh, with a bit of a kind of an eccentric style as well, uh, which I love. But uh, he does. It, he has uh, an amazing use of color, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think and I'm uh, it would be fair to say that British tailoring is not known for uh, bright color, mm -hmm. is it? Yeah. It's quite, you know, we, we're quite conservative. Classic. We're quite classic. Yeah. In the winter, we might wear tweed or, yeah. you know, wool. And, uh, you know, and even when we do a summer suit, at best, it might be linen. A bit like my, <laughs> my linen jacket, which uh, yeah. anyone watching this podcast will probably immediately appreciate did not come from Savile Row, but there we go. Um, it's a beautiful uh, colour. Oh, thank you, Tito. Yeah. That's very kind of you. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, Oswald does a lot. Uh, you know, he does use colour to amazing effect. Yeah. And also, uh, what I love about Oswald is he is very rock and roll, isn't he? Yeah. Because Absolutely. he's done a lot with Hollywood. Yeah. I'm. Uh, he designed the clothes for um, Men in Black. Mm -hmm. The Men in Black suits. Yeah. I yeah. mean, there's nothing more. There's nothing more famous than Men. In, and also, um, Bad Boys. Okay. Name the Bad Boys car. The Bad Boys car. Is there a Testarossa? No, I think a 964 Turbo, I think. Oh, yeah, you're right. Testarossa is Miami Vice. Miami Vice. Yeah, you're right. Well, yeah, yeah, that's a whole different world of fashion. A whole different world, yeah. <laughs> Have you got a white, a, a, a sort of a lightweight, maybe white, pale cream linen suit? I do. And do you roll the sleeves up? Yeah, 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 I do. And I smoke cigars when and I wear them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you got a Testarossa? No, I don't. No, okay. You, need to, put, you need to put that right. Yeah, yeah. A white one. Uh, thank you, Duccio, for spending a few minutes talking to me uh, at thank this you, lovely Peter. event. It's, uh, a, you know, we're here again tomorrow. And it's, uh, let's say, I hope the, uh, the weather stays beautiful and sunny and hot yeah. as it is today. Uh, and uh, round the corner, for those of you who aren't hardcore Londoners or know London very well, uh, is Bond Street. Now, Bond Street, you can buy all sorts of wonderful luxury goods in Bond Street. Leather, bags, shoes, clothing. But... A lot of people head to Bond Street to buy a watch. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are all of the premium brands, retailers selling all manner of, uh, oh, Patex and Rolex and uh, Breguet and Chopard and all of, all of those watch brands. And um, they are, watches are something which have a very uh, unique relationship with the car loving world. I interestingly, when you pick up a classic car magazine, they don't tackle many subjects that aren't classic cars, but True. but they do talk about watches. So there is this unique relationship with watches and cars, and we're going to discuss that a little bit with Sotheby's watch expert, Tom, Tom Heap, and he will be joining us after the break, and we're going to chat a little bit about watch-related matters, which I know are going to be absolutely fascinating, so please come back and join us.
So welcome, everybody. Welcome back to uh, the second part of this week's podcast. And uh, in the first part, I was standing out, or I was sitting, actually, out in Savile Row. And we're still in Savile Row, but we're not out in the street um, in the blazing sun. We're actually in Oswald Boateng's uh, boutique store in uh, Savile Row, and, uh, which is a beautiful environment. And for those of you who are listening to the podcast, you won't be able to see the fact that uh, there are some uh, wonderful jackets and suits behind me um, designed by Mr. Boateng. And uh, it's a, a wonderful environment for us to be uh, hosting our guests uh, over the... Uh, Savile Row Concourse, which is a two-day event, and uh, we're very pleased to be here. But as well as the tailoring that's in here, the incredible tailoring, we've also got a display of uh, jewellery items and a few watches, uh, which have been brought along by my colleagues at Sotheby's. And uh, so as well as what is going on out in the row with all of the wonderful cars, with, uh, alongside all of the wonderful tailoring that's a, a very big part of this event, we've also got other things going on and uh, our Sotheby's are bringing quite a lot to the table. And I'm very pleased to be joined uh, on this podcast by uh, Mr. Tom Heap, who is the uh, resident watch specialist, uh, uh, UK watch specialist. Is yeah. that how we describe yeah, yeah, it? Yeah, I'd say UK. Yep. Yeah, I kind of look after... The UK end of things, which is which is good fun. Um, so yeah, my job's basically going looking for rare and expensive watches, and then convincing people to kind of take them to auction, which is a good laugh. I mean, the life of the, the life of a specialist within an auction house, uh, and you're, you're, you spend your time persuading uh, people to sell uh, fine watches at auction, and we and on the RM Sotheby side of business, we obviously doing the same with with old cars and collectible cars. Mm-hmm. But generally, I, I mean, we've been talking a little bit on this podcast how strong the market for cars is at the moment based on what we've seen so far this year. So how, what's your assessment of the watch market? I mean, it's kind of gone crazy, like, I mean, in a very positive way. I mean, you, even, even if we're just looking at, like, the auction realm. Um, so I think in 2020, uh, the auction... Uh, figures for Sotheby's, Christie's, Phillips, and Anticorum globally, just in auctions for watches, was $350 million. Yeah. The year after, it was $600 uh, million. So you're seeing massive increases. But then we're also seeing, um, you know, quality just beats everything else. If you've got something really special, people will pay above and beyond for it, whether that's like tripling an already high, high-end estimate. But, you know, there's, there's serious appetite there. And you know, it just keeps growing, which is fantastic, really. I mean, do you think that with watches, have you seen uh, a trend in the market that has kicked off in recent months, which uh, sort of is exceptional? I mean, have you seen it, um, you know, um, tracking similarly in in previous years or or what? Yeah, I I think the market's kind of been um, kind of going crazy for the last few years. Obviously, like... um, uh, the pandemic sort of accelerated everything. As you said, everyone kind of wanted to put money into sort of an asset that was a bit more tangible and, you know, worst case scenario, you could probably chuck in your hand luggage. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes. So, um, not that we can do that kind of thing, but it's, um, you know, it's, we, yeah, people have been kind of looking for more interesting kind of assets and sort of a little more unusual things to kind of put money into. And, um, you know, that's not necessarily driving force behind it, but, um, yeah, the market the market's grown pretty exponentially. Sort of in the last kind of couple of years, uh, twelve months especially, it's been really fantastic. So, and are you seeing that across the board in terms of sort of 
I mean, I, you'll have to strip out some brands, but mm -hmm. if you start talking at, about the, the, the high-end luxury watch brands, yeah. are you, are you, it, it, that's happening across the board, is it? Yeah, I think, I think the thing is now we're kind of getting to a point where, you know, like Rolex and Patek Philippe, amazing although they are, they're a little bit not trapped out or anything like that, but people are always trying to look for the next kind of thing around the corner. So we saw that uh, this year and last year with F. P. Jean. That's kind of, they've gone crazy in terms of their figures. I mean, you know, uh, in the early 2000s, if people were buying them, they were like, uh, you know, buying one and then having to kind of sweat about it every single night because they, you know, they would never get this money back. But I mean, put it this way: in um, in Geneva, we sold uh, just gone in our May auctions. We sold a NFP Jean Resonance, which is one of the kind of flagship models for the brand. Uh, for I think it was it was over 200,000 Swiss. And we'd sold the same watch uh, five years earlier for 30. So it was, wow. you know, you're seeing real, real growth there, which is, which is fantastic. And, you know, it's, um, you know, I think we were talking about this a bit earlier on. It's just, it's just the, the thing is there are, there are more and more people who can afford this kind of thing nowadays, and there just simply isn't enough to go around. With watches, um, I sort of track a little bit Rolex to see what's mm -hmm. going on in that market. And, and I read something interesting the other day where uh, a, a journalist said, Rolex is no longer a retail brand because you, you actually can't walk into any store <laughs> in the country and buy one. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, we, we, which is a bizarre thing, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, th there's some truth in that, right? I mean, th th yeah. th they control the supply and that controls the market forces. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it depends how you kind of look at it. But, I mean, you know, when you walk down Bond Street now and look in, like, watches of Switzerland or something like that, you'll see around every Rolex watch in the window, like a sports model, like a Daytona or a Samaritan, it says for exhibition only. Yep. And I think this ended up coming about because people were putting their names down for waiting lists for watches they'd never actually tried on. So they'd get the call and you know, they'd be like, okay, well, you know, you've got like three hours to come pay for this. And they're like, well, I've never seen it, so I don't know if I actually want to buy it. But you know, with the resale market, people, people do. But um, yeah, I mean, there's, there is that aspect. It's, it's, as you were saying with Ferrari, it's still very much that. Um, in watches, so you know you kind of have to work your way up um, and you know buy what you can to be offered something by um, by a retailer. And I think um, with Rolex, because they're you know they 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 operate through a number of retailers, they don't um, actually sell anything themselves. They they are a manufacturer, and that's kind of it. So every watch, every Rolex watch you've ever seen, they've sold. So they you know right. it's not necessarily in their interest to then right. make the unavailable available if it's selling the rest of their stock. So, so yeah, so yeah, but yeah, you know. yeah. I, I've always thought that uh, the, the best opportunity to buy a Rolex is if, um, particularly in Switzerland, like if you're in Zurich and you're airside at the airport, mm. uh, and you just you just stick your head into the into the Zurich Rolex Little shop look. and say, "What's for sale? <laughs> I'll, I'll buy anything. Just tell me what's for sale." <laughs> Rolex is a brand which has um, hung a fair bit of its heritage mm -hmm. on its relationship with um, not, not so much the car industry, but in particular motorsport. Yeah. It is a thing, isn't it? And, yeah. and, and the one thing that we talk a, quite a lot about is how there is a, a relationship between people uh, who are traditional car lovers, car enthusiasts, and the fact that even if there is very, else, very little else in their life that they get enthusiastic about, m a lot of them do get enthusiastic about watches. Yeah. How do you see that? I mean, I mean do, do you think that the, the, the relationship between certain watch brands and the car world, that, has that been important to the way the market moves? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look at, um, if we go kind of straight to 
you know, the Daytona, for example. I mean, that's always kind of been a watch uh, that's kind of been closely associated with motorsport, um, at least, you know, on the Daytona track where it kind of gets its name from. But, um, yeah, I, I think uh, there's always been a correlation between the two. Um, I mean, even even at base, you know, the Daytona is almost like a racing tool. You know, it's uh, you know, it's a, it has a chronograph setting. It is a stopwatch. So, and round the round the bezel, you've got a tachometer which calculates units per hour. So you'll be able to calculate uh, the speed an object is travelling between two points. Um, and I think um, you know that's kind of been heralded in through you know characters like Paul Newman, yeah. uh, which is you know a huge one. I we, I'm sorry to interrupt your Please. flow, but let's talk about, because the, the Paul Newman Daytona, mm -hmm. Rolex Daytona, I mean, that's sort of now, a, that, that's, a, that's a fabled watch, yeah, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it, and, and <laughs> that, that, yeah, that, that sold not so long ago, didn't it? It was 2017, unfortunately it wasn't us, but it was, uh, it was a very big sale. It sold for, I think, about 17.5 million US. Yeah, that's which crazy. Is, which is a chunk, especially for a watch that... Um, yes, of course, it has his, um, you know, his Paul Newman's Paul Newman. But, you know, back in the day, they were $200, you know, yeah. when they were made. So, yeah. <laughs> so and Jack was not, and no one at the time really wanted the Paul Newman. You know, when they were first made, they were called the exotic dials. Um, in the early 60s, they were, Rolex still had this uh, Art Deco style dial, which, you know, people were kind of moving away from. They didn't really want quite elaborately decorated stuff. They wanted black and they wanted silver. And it was all kind of getting towards space age and stuff like that. So they weren't really crazy about it. I mean, to the point where you, you hear stories about jewelers or uh, retailers who had Paul Newman in the window, and they call it Rolex. We like to send someone down and swap the dial over because we don't, we don't want them. And you know, that kind of carried on for a very long time. Like, it only really became popular in like, the 90s. Uh, and even in, you know, in auction catalogs from the early 90s, you see Paul Newman Daytona for $2,000. You know, in yeah, crazy. So his watch sold for a, an insane sum. Yeah. I mean, it, another watch and without the provenance, what would that be worth? Well, it, I was looking at this the other day, and it's. It, I was trying to work out, you know, what the kind of market rate's been for them, uh, and you know where it started, where it's going, and so on. So I mean, you know, you could probably get a Paul Newman nowadays for like one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. You know, you're kind of looking at that as like an entry point to the market. Okay. But at the same time, you know, it's all about condition. Um, and I know there's there's a bit of a kind of split of opinion, especially you know in I, I suppose in in the car game, um, restoring something's like kind of acceptable. Um, if you know if you I guess if you find something period correct and replace it, it's like okay, well that's you know it's from that period, it's made in the factory, it's okay, it's not. Is that right, or am I making yeah, am I, I making mean, a boo boo? Car <laughs> restoration is is um, a topic which can generate quite a lot of heated debate. Mm -hmm. um, what you can quite often find is that certainly in North America, they have a tendency, uh, and I'm not making a judgment here, it just happens to be the case, <laughs> that they have a tendency to, to, to try and restore cars so they are, uh, well, to coin a phrase, better than new. But, but your, your question on watches is, is interesting, and I, I'm sort of, I have a bit of a vested interest in, in this, because um, although I'm not a big-time watch collector, because you can see by the way I'm dressed, I don't have the money to spend on very <laughs> exotic watches. Um, I, you know, I've, I've got a watch which I'm thinking of selling, and you, know, you get a few sort of um, surface scratches mm -hmm. on it. It's a stainless steel watch. So the question for me is, do I, do I get it polished? 
mm. or do I or do I just sell it the way it is? So where where do we stand on that sort of thing? Well, I mean, you know, the the kind of the garden rule is unpolished. That's unpolished. the kind of thing. But I think it, it kind of depends really. Like in the vintage game, it's you know you bring it as you found it. You know, it's um, you don't mess with it. Um, but I think with modern watches, it's becoming more and more acceptable. Um, I think you know. Can, can you tell if a watch has been polished? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So if, <laughs> well, I, if I yes had a one-year, no. if I had a one-year-old Rolex yeah. and 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 it had been polished, mm -hmm. like you could look at it and go, I know that's been. Um, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it's harder to tell on the more modern uh, pieces. Plus, the other thing is, you know, with the advent of like laser technology getting better, um, it's it's harder to uh, to tell. So what what used to be uh, the case is, if you had like a, a Rolex Submariner case, they'd have loads of factory edges that were faceted uh, and quite sharp and sharp-edged and so on. But as you polish them, you lose that. I mean, it, a good ex comparison is like, you know, how a, how a tire balds, you lose that tread almost. Yeah, so yeah. it starts to lose its kind of factory shape. Whereas nowadays, you're able to re-add material with lasers and yeah. polish it down to... So it's getting a bit scary in some cases. So uh, being on the lookout for that's quite quite difficult. But I mean, with modern stuff, I think it's... Um, you know, everybody wants a shiny new Rolex. So a lot of places, if you sell it to them, they'll just polish it up or send it for a service. And that's completely acceptable. But a watch that's 30, 40 years old or, or yeah. possibly older, you, again, you want that to speak to its age. Yeah. You, you don't want to take a 1930 Cartier and just polish it to win no. a of its No, I mean, the, the trick is finding something that's never been worn, always been in the box, you know, yeah. in a plastic bag in the safe since yeah. the day it was born. That's yeah. the dream, but it doesn't really happen that much. I, in my sort of, you know, somewhat... Uh, amateur monitoring of the watch market. I mean, I can't believe how much difference it makes. Watches get sold with what they call a full set, oh, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and, a f and a full set is what? The box? Box the papers. Um, warranty cards. Yeah, the warranty card, yeah. So, I mean, if you really want to get special, you can have like the bezel protector, like the stickers. Even though they've been removed, you can still have the stickers in there. Some protects have like a stylus for you to change the date through the apertures and stuff like that. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I've heard of sales being overturned when someone sold something as a full set and it's turned up without like a bezel protector or like uh, you know a letter from uh, you know the factory or something like that. And they've said oh, that's not said, a full you set. You said it was full set, and I want my money back. Wow, but it's, um, that's that's kind of crazy. So so but you go into a, you go and buy a new Nautilus from mm -hmm. your local protect dealer. What I wish. You, what, what, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What you don't do. Like a like an eight year old at Christmas yeah. is rush home with it, rip it out of the packaging no, no, no. and throw the packaging in the bin. No, 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 that's no, no. not what. Well, we're I mean, you know, if you're if you're looking to sell it now, and it's even got to the point where they the retailers will completely remove all the seals, everything like that, so you're unable to sell it as new or as in factory condition. You used to be able to get like double sealed factory um, protect Philippe, and it just doesn't really happen anymore because they're aware of the, the resale market. So. Yeah, it's poison chalice, really, getting the Nautilus. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, it, it's fascinating stuff. And I, and I think that what, what um, it's funny, you know, chatting to you, because I, I think a, 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 as well as this sort of relationship between car lovers being watchful other lovers and, you know, vice versa, uh, there's a lot of similarities in the market. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we'll finish up soon because uh, sure. we've been chatting for a while. But, but here's, here's also something which is uh, that drives car enthusiasts a, bit, a little bit nuts. A lot of people will go out and buy a new supercar, hypercar, mm -hmm. and they will never drive it. Mm -hmm. uh, because with each passing 500 kilometers, there's a depreciation mm -hmm. curve yeah. associated with that. Um, 
with with watches, are you seeing are people scared of wearing them, or or is that less of an issue? Um, I think, you know, we with modern stuff, it's less of an issue. Um, I think. Uh, we talked a minute ago about refurbishing stuff and so on. You know, if it goes through a proper, you know, factory service, it's fine. I think sometimes people get a bit worried about having it nicked versus having it, um, you know, lose value. Um, I think maybe with vintage stuff, um, it's more of a thing. Um, like, for instance, I, I, I'm a bit of a sucker for vintage Cartier as well, and I've got a really beautiful um, late 70s Cartier Tank Louis, which is, you know, it's quite a small watch. I mean, but it's got a, quite a good... Um, uh, you know, quite a good history of people wearing it. Muhammad Ali had one, mm. Jackie Kennedy had one, slightly different one admittedly, but then so did Andy Warhol, so it's a good spread. Um, but, you know, I mean, I won't wear that when it rains, you know, so, uh, but Fair then enough. also if it's a really expensive, um, you know, vintage and you clock it on a door or something like that, you know, you're knocking 50 grand off it potentially if you hit it in the right spot. Ouch. So it's, yeah. um, you know, yeah. if you hit the bezel or something like that. So, um, yes and no, I think it's, it's almost the reverse. Like, you know, if you buy the right stuff, it tends to appreciate pretty drastically. I think the message needs to be luxury is for you. You know, you've got to use yeah, it. Absolutely. You can't just look at it, can you? No, so no, I no. think whether you're buying a car, if you've got a lovely car, just get out and drive hey, it. If you've, you've got, got a lovely you've got watch, you, you got, you've got to wear it. Yeah. Granted, I, you know, if it's not waterproof and it's, it's lashing me right, yeah, that, might, that might not be the best <laughs> idea. But um, <laughs> thank you, Tom. That's no, no, been my really, really interesting. Thank you for joining us. Well, that's it for another edition of RM Sotheby's Car Show. Many thanks, of course, to Oswald Boating and his team for hosting us in their wonderful store in Savile Row, and to Duccio and Mr. Tom Heap for imparting some of his invaluable watch knowledge. Next week, we're heading out of the city to a pretty special location out in the country where some wonderful cars are stored in an amazing environment, and we're going to catch up with Sam Hancock, ex Le Mans driver and historic racer extraordinaire who's peddled some of the world's finest cars to some incredible victories at circuits around the world. Finally, if you haven't already, if you enjoyed the show, then please rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find us. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.